0: The podcast platform of the Phenomalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, Politics of Space and Architecture in Belgrade with Anna Djokic. Hello everyone. Today my guest is uh, Anna Jokic, who is uh, an architect in Belgrade, where we are recording uh, this conversation, and she's uh, the co-founder of a, uh, an office called stelson Limited with uh, Martin Nielsen. Nielsen, sorry. Um, uh, hello, Anna. Hi. Uh, so today we will speak about um, uh, both. Uh, I mean, we will speak about your work, but maybe try to be uh, specific to. As uh, a place where we are recording, which is Belgrade, because your your office are is um, both here and in Rotterdam. Um, uh, but maybe before we even start to speak about that, would you mind maybe uh, telling me a little bit what you are doing at Stealth, Because it's not just any architecture office.
1: Mm-hmm. Hi everyone. Um, Stealth is actually not an office. We, 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 uh, when we started, we thought of the idea of an office and uh, practiced this for a couple of years as an office with the idea that we should have a place and space specifically where we work, and that was in Rotterdam. But actually somewhere in uh, 2006, when we were invited for a first residency somewhere else, we realized that we don't need an office and that we don't want to run an office. Yeah. So basically since that time, we don't even try to pretend that that is an office. Basically, it is now two of us, Mark and me, and we work uh, nomadically in different places, Uh, but there are two, let's say, base places which we have, and one is Belgrade, where we spend now most of the time, and the other one is Rotterdam, but our projects take, take us to a number of different places this year. For instance, a lot of time we spend in Vienna, where we did a project. at uh, at the Museum of Applied and Contemporary Art for a biannual which is taking place now there. And uh, what we do is started... In the beginning of Stealth was mainly urban research. Um, uh, We were were looking at different conditions of contemporary city. Um, In the beginning was a lot of uh, looking at the temporary use, for instance, was one of the topics in the very beginning. Um, but then also somewhere uh, from 2007-2008, we were involved in curating a number of things. Like, for instance, in 2008, was uh, we were curators of the Dutch Pavilion at the Architecture Biennial in Venice, uh, together with the Architecture Institute from Rotterdam. And then, from then, we were curators for a number of things which were actually mainly in the domain of art. So we are somewhere in between art and architecture. And... Uh, we also realized a couple of, I would maybe rather call them spatial interventions than ar- architecture, because they are not really built, I mean, they are buildings, they are spaces, but they were more like a uh, commissions to do some sort of a process with people that resulted in buildings. So there are a couple of these things, and even one of them is in Medellin in Colombia. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's a variety of things. And maybe here for this conversation, what is important to mention is that we are uh, also initiators of two uh, platforms or two initiatives. One is here in Belgium and it's called Who Builds the City? And that is from 2010. And the other one is in Rotterdam called The City uh, city in the Making since 2013, Mm -hmm. end of 2013.
0: And I think we'll go back to uh, who built the city a little bit later, but maybe before we do so, to understand uh, a little bit the context from which we are speaking, uh, once again, Belgrade in that case, um, uh, and maybe preceding a little bit uh, your own, your personal practice as an architect, as Mm -hmm. I started at at the end of the 90s, basically, uh, but maybe a decade before that, with uh, with the strong changes in uh, in the dissolution of Yugoslavia and and uh, the change of regime, uh, could could you maybe try to It's, it's, a, it's a difficult <laughs> question, but can you maybe try to synthesize a little bit the last. Uh, 30 years of of history (laughs) in like 5 minutes or 10 minutes I can try to make a digest
1: from personal perspective (laughs) I mean because the story can be told of course uh, rationally and from many different ways but I can tell you from my own perspective I started to study architecture in 1989 so that is uh, before the just before the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, uh, two years before the falling apart of Yugoslavia in 1989 yeah. yes and uh, it was uh, I mean the on one hand there is a certain feeling like of, as a citizen as a, as a pe- person living here uh, walking on the streets uh, from that period and for instance a couple of years later that, it, that we for instance in 93, 94 I felt that I'm living in a different city uh, just by seeing people on the street, how people felt, how people behaved, how pe- population changed in a way some people left, some people came. So it was a very different very different feel uh, also somehow the the air that we were breathing was different in some way. and uh, what uh, what I when I started to study and also actually during my whole studies we studied, uh, and the, for instance, designs that we made were meant for the society that was there until 1990 or 91. Uh, and I finished my studies in—I uh, actually graduated in '98, so I started quite long. But let's say I followed the classes and all of that till '94. And we did, um, uh, for instance, design for uh, collective housing, uh, large apartment buildings. <laughs> Uh, things that from that time actually until, almost until recently, didn't happen at all. So we were trained for a society that stopped to exist while we were studying. And of course, with students, we were not aware of that, maybe uh, um, enough. Uh, But uh, there's something that architects maybe only now, here, if you start to talk with them, are aware of or openly speak about. So, so there was a, a reality on the street, and there was something uh, that we would be studying, <laughs> mm. and uh, that was also the moment in the ninety, some mid nineties, where a lot of informal things started to happen on the street. It started basically by just simply people lacking basic things. Uh, we had a huge inflation in ninety three when. Uh, the shop, which was orchestrated by the state, so it was not. We had international sanctions here that no goods could come in and go out. Uh, there was a lot of smuggling and people, people, and organized also crime was bringing these things across the borders. Uh, but uh, actually, the inflation itself was orchestrated by the state. It was in this in this situation, they used an opportunity to basically rob us from from money. That would be then used in the wars in mainly in bosnia and uh and this trade, which was going on on the street, of course, influenced the shops were empty, so trade went on the street and from then on, things started to change quite dramatically uh and this was something that was not discussed on our faculty. this was something that we, everyone was passing through every day but was not talking was not spoken about and then somewhere in ninety seven uh, I remember uh, actually before that, I was uh, I happened to be the, to hear about EASA, which was European Architecture Students' Assembly, uh, European organization of students. And we were some group of crazy people that in '93, in all this um, like tightly closed country, we managed through. go go through a lot of trouble and also to get some sponsorship and to get to one of these meetings and that was very important for us, there were six of us, we went to Shetland Islands and uh, I don't know how many thousand kilometers away from here and we realized that actually there is a world outside, that here there was no one was coming into Serbia or actually it was called uh, called, small Yugoslavia at that time and we wanted to organize something similar here. Finally, we managed in '96 to organize an event which was called Project X, which was pretty influential for my own development as uh, not as, not just as, ar- as an architect, but as a person, as a maybe politically conscious person. And um, and uh, we wanted it to be independent, so we didn't organize it in our university, but did it in an abandoned uh, factory, Um, and uh, 200 people came, and we, through that project, we became quite political in how we were speaking about it, uh, what we did, we we wanted to discuss, also the title Project X, like questioning actually where we are and what it is, attracted a lot of foreigners to come into a place which was closed, basically, and (coughs) And, and from then on I was interested how can you, that sort of engagement how can you develop it further and one of the things that we as a, we formed an organization which was also called Project Architects, was a non-governmental organization and one of the things that we became interested that was then in 97 there was this manifesto of Society of Architects that came out uh, there was a reconstruction of um, one of the hospitals quite actually close to this place where we sit now. It was a children's hospital, and there was an extension made to this building. And um, it was a famous uh, modernist building, Uh, and they made a pitched roof with uh, an unplastered facade, and that was added on top of this formerly flat roof building. (coughs) In the time of of this uh, crisis on many levels... And the architects were concerned with how this looks, and the children hospital had no space, <laughs> to, to 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 for for their I mean, hospital things that they do. Um, that was one thing. Another thing is that was that there was uh, uh, that there was uh, uh, extension on a, on a, on an apartment block. And there is this iconic by now image of two houses like with pitched roofs sitting on the top of eight story building, eight, nine story building, like rural houses on top of an urban environment. And this was another thing that architects were outraged about. But what was discussed was how they dare to do this, not why this is there what is the society in which we are that people have to react like this that there is no provision of housing anymore that there is no taking care of hospitals and that these were the results of basically falling apart of society in which people or some institutions that, that took matter into their own hands and did it where they could do it so they made space where it was possible some of these things were half legal some, some were illegal and uh, and this was this was something that we already did with this group project X. We started to we were we were in a way shocked with this manifesto that came out. Uh, then we didn't do much about it. But then in '98 I I I uh, went to do my post uh, postgraduate studies in Amsterdam at the Berlache Institute. And Mark and me we made an, a proposal. Mark didn't study there, but we made the proposal together. To look at actually this in illegal informal side of of the city development, and uh, and that became a project which which is called, which was called project a uh, uh, wild, wild city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it had actually another funny or first funny title was genetic genetics of uncontrolled urban processes, and, uh, and the idea was to observe this without without actually looking at the look, <laughs> but more why. Okay. Why? And in which, mo- maybe more even, uh, what mechanisms were there? How it evolved through the time? Because we saw certain evolution of things. And uh, m- uh, we did it also with two other friends. One was, uh, one friend is Milic Topalovic, who was also at the Berlach Institute. He came one year after me. And another one was Ivan Kucina, who was at at that time teaching at the Faculty of Architecture here, and we managed actually through his course to introduce about 80 students of architecture into this subject, which no one really at the faculty wanted to discuss at that time. That was 2000, and uh, he uh, literally informally brought this uh, program into the school uh, by putting something else in the curricula... and and actually doing a a database... actually making... we were making database of all... what was going on in the city. So we literally cut the maps... and students were going... and photographing and documenting... and writing down... what was going on in different parts. And uh, one of the drives behind this... was to understand... how people do these things on their own. And another drive was to understand... what we as a profession can do there. So Mm -hmm. it was somehow that that on one hand you have uh you have some bottom up energy, and on the other hand you have a profession which which is completely incapable to do anything mm-hmm.
0: with it <laughs> and that nonetheless fascinated by it right with, i mean it's interesting we um, the, we already had two conversations yeah. in the program about similar processes but in very different places so that's quite interesting Uh, with uh, Alejandro Hernandez uh, in uh, Mexico City Mm -hmm. and with um, Cluster in in Cairo and and, uh, each time we're talking about how architects are fascinated by those processes but on the other hand are running after them. Yes. rather than trying to rethink their own practice of their discipline yeah uh, so i mean could could you maybe tell us more about the various manifestation of what you call wild city because i mean y- you talked about mm-hmm. the, the building uh, wild extension so to speak but i think it,
1: it was also that's easy to picture yeah. even without the picture but, but there are many other many other things i mean we were looking at things literally in public space like uh, maybe trading things for trade and we looked at this evolution from a car selling to, on cargo boxes to selling on car hoods to selling on stands which were at that point somehow provided by some institution and then uh, kiosks which were uh, placed throughout the city uh, which in the end also had to have some kind of permit. And then these becoming more uh, more solid, like people re- literally building building there. Then they were at some point, some parts of the city had these kiosk-like structures uh, built by, with bricks. And on top of that, living spaces. Some of th- Most of these have been demolished uh, in the meantime. So, for instance, this is in public space. Then some people literally build houses on green spaces, for instance, in the areas with modernist blocks. Uh, then, then numerous roof extensions. Uh, and then you have whole areas, which started even before the 90s to be, or even in the end of 60s, informal areas to be built. And there is one famous called Kaluzjerica, uh, today with about 30,000 people officially, uh, which so, which emerged during the socialist period already, and then in the '90s the boom of this started all over. So there were some areas uh, where pol- certain political parties, which were there uh, in order to get votes, gave to people agricultural land which belonged to the city, and then they would start constructing whole new settlements. This would ma- mainly refugees who came from other parts of Yugoslavia in the '90s and. Uh, they would get just plots to build uh, <coughs> without any infrastructure laid out. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, if we if we move forward in this little mm-hmm. history <laughs> yes. of of, uh, of Belgrade, <coughs> we we can even talk about. Cur- current situation we we met today at a at a, a protest against the mm-hmm. current master plan for the waterfront of uh, of Belgrade along the river can you can you tell us a little bit about what's going on t- uh, in in this particular project and what it means in the politics of the city
1: yeah yes but there are a couple of phases in between yeah, this maybe <laughs> we just have to briefly <laughs> mention because it's not from from the from let's say this wild period uh, we we to reach today there were a couple of other phases so one thing maybe just to say that we had maybe even naive idea that this uh, that this wild period could teach us something and maybe we can get something out of it that could be used in the normalized period, let's say before after the wars are over, after the emergency situation is over, that this could be incorporated in the practice that architects and planners can work with people. but basically even we made the presentations in the city urban planning department, which was very interesting. It's a very interesting story on its own. Nothing of this until until 2003 uh, general urban plan was somehow captured. And in the 2003 General Plan, there is for the first time mentioning of the informal construction of the illegal areas, and a lot of it, I think, has been influenced by this discussion that we somehow brought up. But it is still on the level of criticizing it instead of trying to figure out how to resolve this situation. (coughs) Uh, And then what happens in the mid-2000s, is the uh, op- opening of the country for the foreign, cre- foreign banks to come in. And that's when the credit, credits for apartments on a big scale are for the first time available <coughs> for the citizens of Belgrade. There were credits available also in the socialist time, but it was a very different uh, uh, struct- construction. And many of these credits were disappeared somehow through inflation and different sorts of things in that period. But now it became this hardcore credit that people really get indebted in order to buy apartments. And started the construction boom, mainly small-scale private companies that would make buildings where, which people would uh, uh, buy without almost any money, uh, having any money in, in, at start. Uh, Then these companies started to uh, grow bigger, then some of the big companies also opened their real estate offices, Uh, and there was one area constructed in New Belgrade called Belleville, and uh, this was done on a public land, which was uh, meant to be a housing development. The area was meant to be developed for uh, Universiade, which is this Olympics for students, which happened in 2009, the city didn't have uh, enough money to construct it, so it gave, actually, the land in exchange for a, for apartments that were or the whole settlement that would be built area uh, that would be built um, on this publicly given land in exchange for use of this for 15 days. So I mean, it, imagine just what the present it is for this development company. Since then, a number of these corruption uh, processes happened. There was a shopping mall constructed in, on the land next to or attached to the former Central Committee of Yugoslav Communist Party, um, which was given basically for free. Voted in the city parliament, um, <clears throat> and if you put it all together, the, a huge amount of money was like this given uh, to private developers most of them tycoons people who got their first million in the 90s through different kind of smuggling and all of that so basically this uh, informality continued on a huge scale it's shifted from small people building for themselves which was in some way in our view sort of democratization of this to completely different scale and different logic and then we, it's not a surprise that we reached the point today, in 2015 or 2014 actually, when the government of Serbia announced that it is going to use the, the piece of land where now is the central railway station, which is for years or actually decades meant to be replaced from that uh, a spot to another, that these railway tracks would be removed and this was meant to be a new development some kind of a new center and that that center would be spreading from the old belgrade to the new belgrade side this idea was uh, somehow reawakened in 2012 for a local for for the for the elections in belgrade the guy who's Alexander vučić who is now the prime minister was a candidate for a mayor and he came up with this story that there would be a uh, if he is elected there would be this development on the Sava River Bank uh, which I don't know was it given already that time name I don't think so but Belgrade Waterfront Belgrade Navodi Uh, and he for that occasion pulled in Rudy Giuliani who came (laughs) from New York to be part of this election campaign and there were photos of them on the river and looking at this and smiling and pointing at, at stuff and everyone thought it's a joke uh now we have this guy as a prime minister and uh, now he cha- he of course Rudy Giuliani was there just for photos and uh, then then uh, in uh, last year there was uh he became or I don't know maybe earlier but last year it was announced that United Arab Emirates uh, with and the emir of <laughs> United Arab Emirates is now he's uh, good friend, and that the Emirates are going to invest into Serbia. There are a couple of things in which they are investing. One is that they bought the national 50... Actually, they have less than half of the national air company, Air Serbia. They bought uh, uh, some agricultural land, of most valuable agricultural land, and this is uh, by now the third deal, is this waterfront project. And the waterfront project started with the proclamation that this area is going to be redeveloped in the partnership of Serbia and S- Serbia, state of Serbia uh, and um, United Arab Emirates uh, and that they will foreigners will invest 3.5 bi- uh, billion euro into development which is going to be finished in 3-4 to four years today we have a completely different story today we, we have a new introduced law lex specialis, which was made to make this a project of national interest. We have a changed general um, plan to fit this project. We have a new special plan for this area, which um, basically denounces all the other existing regulations. Uh, we have a contract which is signed uh, last spring, when we had the first protest on the same, more or less the same spot where we were today, uh, where we tried somehow to uh, give a sign that signing this contract is, uh, is a completely wrong move and the process which we had finally today was connected to putting the, the foundation stone to mm-hmm. this project. So basically what happened so far is that, uh, that the city of Belgrade cleaned up the area, not tot- complete because it's a huge area, I think 180 hectares, but a, a big part of it. And the first realized building on this ...is something which was meant to be temporary pavilion. In this pavilion was supposed to be information about this huge project. Actually, it turns out that it is a uh, cafe, private... Uh, ...and uh, that there is actually in it one brochure... ...where you can read about the project. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, officially... building was supposed to be dismantled in July this year. It is still there... So just this one first building, which has been small building, which has been realized, shows what sort of corruption case this is. And the owner, as far as I heard today, is the prime minister' friend. So the whole thing is made basically to pull out public money, and uh, it's completely out of public interest. And the 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 company Eagle Hills, which is the from United Arab Emirates, is 68 percent owner in this. Uh, sort of enter- enterprise that they built together with the uh, with Serbian state uh,
0: go, maybe go, <coughs> going back to um your own work very much mm-hmm. in a, in opposition a of, of the processes you just described and maybe uh, inspired in some way with what we were talking about earlier about the the wild cities, but maybe trying to redefine the, what is it to be a practicing architect today uh and in your in your own words not uh, that i read somewhere not not to not to do blueprints anymore but rather to uh, maybe uh, formulate questions which is something we very underrated i feel like we we take questions for granted when actually there it's not that there is no stupid questions like we are taught when we were kids actually they are stupid (laughs) questions and that's what that's what actually where all the problems come from it's not so much wrong answers it's wrong questions so maybe the architect as a as a question formulator and uh, as an organizer of conversations i think many of the projects you've been doing are, are very much falling under under this hat if not all of them uh but so in this um in this uh, attempt to favor dialogue and creative pro- collaborative uh, 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 creative process, <coughs> uh, obviously, whenever we talk about that, and for for the listeners that are let's say familiar with the current uh, debates within the architecture field, we we can see how there is a, an entire part of the practice that claims to be from. With the, those sort of aims of like talking of participation and all those things, but somehow fail to, fail to really address, uh, for whom mm-hmm. this participation is uh, is um, uh, enabled, and uh, I mean when when we were preparing this conversation, I was telling you about for example the the current the current, uh, the current uh, mayor of Paris uh, Anne Hidalgo has uh has run her campaign and now is implementing um some sort of participatory budget to the city and when you look at the budget in question it's like uh there is one project out of dozens really that is really uh to to me like asking a real question about about homelessness and what what can be done Uh, all the others are about like putting flowers somewhere and uh uh making more streets pedestrian for cafes to come in and i mean you know all those projects that at the end of the day are very much targeting uh yeah. a middle class uh creative creative class i mean very much like us let's be <laughs> let's recognize it mm-hmm. but precisely that's not that we should not be doing architecture for us but rather for uh a broader collective so could you could you maybe uh help us to think of of how to how to intervene within this field without without falling into
1: those traps so to speak. I yeah it's a, it's a good question. Um there are, I can give I can talk both about context here and about context in Rotterdam because in Rotterdam for instance there is uh there is since a couple of years uh, very similar procedure uh, that uh, different citizens' initiatives uh, can propose projects that are valuable for the city and then uh, you can vote online uh, for the project that you find interesting and uh, what is what is I think uh, symptomatic is that most of the projects are proposed by architects. Mm or there is at least some architect in the team. Um, And uh, another thing which I think is symptomatic is how this uh, this huge amount of budget is actually given for one thing. Uh, And I know, and I have been also part of this voting process, uh, a couple of years ago, when uh, when a collective Zeus from from Rotterdam proposed this, uh, maybe you saw it, it's quite nice looking, a wooden bridge uh, that connects a building in which uh, they have a temporary offices around re- close to railway station and uh, in, in Rotterdam. And this project, uh, so so people pitch projects, then there is a small video which is made and then you go online and you have to have your identity code uh, from the city government and then you can vote. It's not just like clicking like on Facebook. Uh, so it's more serious, serious procedure. Uh, this project has been. A, this project actually started first as an idea that people would uh, donate money through some some sort of um, uh, like contributions of ten euro, fifteen euro, and that in that way they could build this bridge. Uh, and it was initiated through Architecture Biennial, actually. Uh, they didn't manage to do that. So when this opportunity appeared, <coughs> they re, uh, let's say, upscaled the, the, the proposal enormously. <coughs> then this bridge became much more extended, also incorporated roof of that building. Uh, and I have to admit that I voted for that project as well. And <coughs> then project got the money, and it was 4.5 million euros. While at the same time, there were at least a couple of other projects which were interesting and maybe by sharing this huge amount of money on a couple of things, maybe more could have been achieved. Now this is finished. It has been launched uh, somewhere uh, last July, finally finished. Actually, this bridge connects nothing like a b- bridge like as a utilitarian thing is really does not connect any important flow through uh, through the city uh, there is a passage where you can cross the railway tracks it's it's not like a thing that you would say yeah this was very useful it looks nice i mean and it, you can make a good photos ab- <laughs> about it so what i think is the crucial problem with this process is that uh, if you compare to, for instance, place where, where participatory budgeting started, uh, that was in Porto Alegre in Brazil, the idea was very different. The idea was actually to emancipate people through the process of participatory budgeting. And this process involves a lot of people. It takes a lot of time and it cannot be shortcutted through this sort of uh, quick uh, procedure in which you basically, some people make a proposals and then you click online and, and, and that's it the most important part of it is that process in which people discuss together, propose together, uh, then vote, uh, make consensus what is really important at that point for the city, and then this is executed, and then they also control what has been done. And then this goes in the next year and the next year and the next year. I mean, in Porto Alegre, after so many years, they got a little bit tired of this process, but it is, uh, it is very different from these versions which we see in Europe. Um, well, we had an interesting example in a, in a town in Italy, but that's another story, small town in Italy, which practices this quite radically in some way. Uh, but throughout Europe you have it practiced now, and it is not substantial amounts of money, not serious engagement of people, and the procedure which is very brief. Uh, so it cannot really bring the same results and it is not this kind of emancipation democratization of this process so i mean that that is something related to that and then on, on the other hand like how could you engage people who are really in need and this also middle class in need for for us if we speak about situation here in serbia middle class is really diminishing uh, very much and uh uh, for instance people that can afford to uh, to buy an apartment and uh, there is a lot of young people I mean, that cannot afford literally to move from their parents that cannot afford to live independent life uh, that are bound to many relationships because uh, they have no economic uh, possibility to do that uh, there is maybe a, a little bit of a different situation and I mean, I can tell, I can tell what we are trying to do here. I, I, we are not yet far, far with it. Although we are doing it for three years, but we started, we started an initiative with the "Who builds the city?" We started an initiative which is called uh, "Smarter Building," and as you can guess, it plays also with this notion of smart building. Mm-hmm. So it's not a smi- smart house. It's not a house, but it's a building. So it's something collective. And on the other hand. It's not smart technologically and efficient uh, in terms of energy use, mm-hmm. but smarter means that it should also be smarter socially.
0: Because just to explain for maybe the <coughs> listeners that are
1: not, uh,
0: maybe are like architects or, <laughs> or yeah. familiar with this concept, it's it's re- the the concept of smart house or smart cities come very much from uh, corporation, corporations that are involved in technology and that are, uh, wanting to maybe put sensors absolutely everywhere so that there is a sort of direct response to whatever yeah. the sensor is indicating, uh, and there might be smarter, smarter, smarter ways to 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 work with that. Uh, I guess that's exactly what, that's yes. what you're yes. trying to. <laughs> I mean, it was a sort of a joke. Yeah, yeah. no, of course, <laughs> with
1: the, with the using using the term, um, and uh, I mean for us it has been. Um, the, and it's still still we are far from it reaching many people with this because we are developing a, a model of housing which can connect people that are maybe not financially viable to do it maybe some are and others that are not so where they can pull uh, forces and resources together but forces and resources of different kind so so that is one thing and this cannot be done individually, it can only do, be done collectively. And um, and we are trying to develop a process in which fr- from start, from, from how do you organize to how do you find finance to how do you find location, everything is done collectively. And we entered this process literally without having a plan how to do it. We started it with an open call. Uh, And there was uh, maybe about 40 people that came in the beginning. And now we have about 20, 25 people that are gravitating, that are working within this one way or another. And then more people that are gravitating somehow to this idea. And I hear almost every day when I meet some, oh, how is it going? I would like to join in. But people somehow waiting to see that it is like that the model is there and then th- then they join. And there are not many people that are ready to go through through this whole long, lengthy process, which now we are reaching almost three years. So, I mean, I see this as one way, and this is not a process in which... Uh, I mean, there are architects, of course, but this is not a precondition. Even, even better if people are not architects, because there is a variety of... Uh, not just different professions needed, but people in need from, from different backgrounds. And, uh, and uh, what we are also trying to uh, connect in this are people like homeless people, uh, people that would, that would somehow be candidates for social housing, which we actually have in Serbia very, very tiny amount of this. 98% of housing in Serbia is private, so we don't have social housing. So that is the so now imagine train in which we are entering ninety eight private uh and two percent are either not resolved restitution process where apartments were owned by the are still owned by the state and now should be returned to owners before the second world war so what is what is still let's say this social housing? Most of it is developed on the territory. For instance, Belgrade. There are a couple of hundred apartments, so it's it's very very tiny. So with this initiative, we are both trying to develop some sort of uh, s- s- citizen solidarity, but on the other hand, also to respond to the lack of social housing. So it's a, it is a huge huge topic and a huge job, uh, which I hope we will open a tiny window. A mm-hmm. uh, last <coughs> point I wanted to talk about, which is.
0: There, I mean, very much in the continuity of what you were just talking about is a notion that you seem to have worked quite a bit uh, about and uh, that I'm maybe less familiar with, I mean, uh, at a conceptual level, so to speak, but the notion of commons. Uh, and uh, I think you, you in a text you've wrote, you follow a particular quote uh, that distinguishes three... Points that make the comments, which is a, a community, uh, a resource mm-hmm. uh, to be in common, and uh, the management of mm-hmm. this resource. And what I found interesting is that usually we tend to we tend to focus on either the community or the resource. But here, your take was more to think about the management and to say that thi- this is what it is what what is crucial yeah. about the act of commenting. Uh, could you tell us more about that?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, somehow we intuitively, since since that wild city research, we were interested in this, uh, co- in some way, collective uh, development of the city. But we, until a couple of years ago, Mark and me, we didn't come actually across this term commons, and then when we came across it, we actually realized that everything what we've been thinking and doing before is connected to this. Um, at that time, maybe we were also not so much aware of this importance of this management part. But since then, uh, there is more and more awareness, not just for us, but among people in general who are dealing with this, that how important this common management is. And that is also something which is relevant in our initiative here with the Smarter Building. Uh, how do you so how do you how do you decide on things, and uh, maybe it is w- because we are now in Belgrade. And it depends in which context you you talk about it. Maybe it is important actually to go back to to socialist Yugoslavia, because socialist Yugoslavia was from the 50s on based on the system of self-management, which was different from, for instance, Soviet Union or other countries that were be- belonging to Eastern Bloc. Yugoslavia was not part of that. And it also, because it was wanted to distinguish itself, it wanted to develop a different system. And this self-management was, uh, or initially was meant as a system in which workers manage factories and workplaces, it could be a faculty of architecture, in which they work, uh, through a process of collective decision-making. And then this also extended to the lowest political units, which were these what we call mass design, it's our, our, uh, in English, would be neighborhood units. And, um, but unfortunately, this system didn't work higher up. So it was, it was introduced top down, let's say. Self-management was introduced top down and also was seen by people as something that has been introduced top down. They only realized, or some only realized, uh, what it meant and what sort of power they could have had through it, once it it disappeared. And if you, for instance, in the last couple of years, maybe last seven, eight years, there is a revisit uh, among theoreticians, also people in in the world of culture here, revisit of of this period and quite a lot of discussion what it meant and a lot of discussion what it could mean for the future. So let's say we had this one experience, which was very valuable, but maybe... Also, the existence of that system is somehow also the trouble to introduce commons, a principle of commons, which you can say self-management was a sort of commons. Again, because there, I- this became a sort of taboo. It became a thing that that is unwanted past. Officially, I mean, if you if you, but more and more, it's somehow coming up. So in that context, it's. Uh, it's in some way difficult, or <laughs> easy and difficult to talk about commons, M- because on one hand, of this, of this uh, let's say umbrella, f- which for which was for the whole society, and on the other hand, that commons are meant to be thing which starts from the bottom. So the, for me, still the biggest question is where these two things could meet, mm-hmm. where the commons can jump from the from from the organization like the Smarter Building Initiative or other things, to something that would become a bit more universal on the level of society
0: uh, and
1: uh, <coughs> i
0: mean to to maybe give some um, some very down to earth examples let's say because it's true that when we talk about the commons it it can quickly uh, fall into some sort of abstract scheme, so to speak mm-hmm. but i think I think you've been looking at um, you've been looking at examples of of co-ownership like mm-hmm. here, uh, like at a, yeah. at a property level which i guess is also a, a, a quite uh quite drastically different uh uh strategies than, than during the yeah. socialist uh regime so could could you maybe tell us more about that because i know that in cities like berlin right now there's been there's been some uh some projects like that of of, of co-ownership like the the ownership of a land by a given mm-hmm. co- neighborhood, neighborhood community.
1: Yeah. Well, there are some interesting examples um, in Croatia. For instance, in the text, we were mentioning some examples where they are trying to develop, or they developed, actually, uh, what they call civil-public pu- partnership, but maybe we'll talk more about this with people in Zagreb, uh, where the, in that case, city collaborates with civil society organizations and a city in, invests, let's say, brings in a building, which is then managed by a collective of people. And not one collective, which is interesting, but a number of them, uh, which determine together how is the program going to be run, how is this space going to be financed, and things like this. <coughs> in Berlin, of course, there are a number of, of places that you can that you can call commons. Uh there is uh, an interesting uh, initiative in Brussels called the uh, Commons Josefat, where uh, along a railway track, they are trying to actually leave this piece of land in some way out of prop ownership. Uh, and then it can be uh, articulated by people that are interested in somehow to put their energy in time, how this could be used. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are, I mean, it's... Some people even, uh, let's say, uh, p- label it commons, like this commons, Joseph. but literally they use the term for it. Some others don't use that term, but if you look really how it functions, it is a commons. Okay,
0: well, Anas, <laughs> thank you so much for your time, and uh, good luck with uh, all your future project with uh, Stealth Unlimited, and I obviously invite all listeners to... Uh, go on your website to check the project. I, I know it's a little bit outdated. but, yeah. uh, but uh, We will try a, to update. Yeah, <laughs> there's, already, there's already plenty uh, on it. So thank you so much.